Hey, Shane. Stanislav. What's up, S-Baby? I see you're opening like seven copies of Full Art Flame of Anor. Yeah. There was a brief period where I technically bought out UK card market of the Full Art Flames of Anor. I don't know if that's still the case. Flame of Anors, you mean? Yeah. Flames of Anors. Anors. <laughs> um, I, I call them Anors Flames. I both want to play them, but it would be nice to make a cheeky profit. Am I right? A whole four or five pounds could be made by doing that, I think. How many LBs? It's, it's GPPs, and you know that. Can, can I tell you, by the way, that I, I opened two boxes of Lord of the Rings, okay? And every time I go look for Lorien Revealed, Flame of Anor, Soren's Ransom, to get a single of any of those... <laughs> Of any of those cards. I got two Lorien Revealed in two boxes. How many like random hobbits did you open? So many random hobbits. I did get three <laughs> Bowmasters and a ring out of my Ooh. boxes at least. So I, so oh, I got boo-hoo. some of the cards that I wanted. But it well, was still like... the highest value card in the set. Yeah, but I was still like, what? All these secondary cards, I didn't get any of them that I want. And now I'm reduced to like building EDH decks to use my Mithril Coats and things <laughs> like that. I think anyone who makes any EDH deck is reduced to doing that. <laughs> yeah, I am. I have I have Glamdring in my list just because it's one of the only other mythics I opened. I opened a Glamdring too, and I was like, this this actually looks like kind of an interesting card. It's all of two dollars. Mm-hmm. That's how it works, I guess. Sometimes it do be that way. Hello and welcome to episode 239 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Manchester, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's a happy Labor Day to you, Shane Beeps. My favorite holiday of the year, Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you and yours. Today, day is Labor Day. <laughs> yes, uh, Stanislav, how's my uh, Flame of Anor's mogul doing today? I'm having a great day. It's very warm in Manchester. We've got a, a bit of a heat wave going on in Europe. Uh, and it, this time it actually reached northern England. I'm sweating. Oh, no. Well, I did see you sent a video about 10 minutes ago of <laughs> you stridently striding through the alley. That was alley, the, no, the that road. Was, that was that was a very normal road. I uh, like an alley. I was gonna say that's just what streets look like in Europe, buddy. <laughs> that's just what they look like. Our, we don't really have alleys that look like American alleys. We have, I, I think they're called bin alleys, and they're very very narrow. Two people could not stand side by side in a bin alley, and they're just wide enough for you to store your rubbish bins and for the councilman to come and collect your rubbish bins once a week. And write tickets when you mess up your bins. Basically, yeah, and fine you. Also with us, the godfather, Dave Hardbarker. Local bin expert. (laughs) That's how I always describe you. The the weirdest thing for me moving to the suburbs has been that the bins I have to take out to to the curb every week. They're not just in my alley where the truck comes and gets them. And then I have to put stickers on things that are too big. When you're in the city of Chicago, you don't have to put stickers on anything. Out here, you got to like pay extra. You got to want to get rid of a filing cabinet? It's an extra six bucks. Put some stickers on it. 
Before we get into this week's show, we should talk about our sponsor, Heavy Play, the card gaming accessories brand that's determined to improve your gameplay and your game day. Their playmats, their deck boxes, and their card sleeves feature ergonomic enhancements specifically for mobility and protection to go hand in hand. Gentlemen, I went to a Wilds at All Drain pre-release on Friday night, and mm-hmm. I, I brought my Equip Mag deck box to be my pre-release deck box so I don't have to use that crappy cardboard trash that Wizards gives us <laughs> with punch out plus one plus one tokens that are worthless. So I used my uh, my Heavy Play deck box and my Heavy Play playmat, and I kid you not, all of my opponents commented on how cool my playmat is when they saw me click it into place. People love it. Yeah, I remember before it was officially out, I was using the beta test stuff at my LGS as well. And everyone was like, one person was like, yeah, I heard about it on your podcast. I've already pre-ordered it. Another person and then two other people were like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is very cool because... You know, you get to snap, snap, snap everything together. You get to carry everything in a single hand. You get to throw it in your bag. Really I, I even dove into the sleeves this weekend because I, as you know, I have an entire modern collection Ooh. in a certain kind of sleeve already. But some people have convinced me, or maybe <laughs> I convinced myself to actually make a commander deck. And so I sleeve my commander deck in the in the uh, curved sleeves bottom curve sleeves gave them a try they feel really good you know what i felt so good about it i put my secret rule zero card in heavy heavy play sleeves as well which is a mox ruby that i'm going to surprise my (laughs) play group with so i have mox ruby in there i have a wheel of fortune in there uh, a couple of other kind of random expensive cards that i have i just you know i threw them in i put them you know why because i trust the boxes the sleeves i do trust as well but i very much trust the boxes to take care of my stuff. <laughs> so if you want to check out Heavy Play stuff, you can go to heavyplay.com. Look at all of the various product options that are there. And you can use code the dive down 2023 for 10% off of your first order there. It's also hopefully coming to your LGS soon. I know that uh, we talked to Randy. He says that a good number of folks out there have been using the code. We truly appreciate that. And the more of you that do, the more likely we are to keep working with heavyplay.com. I will tell you what, there's stuff in the pipeline. I'm not going to tell you what that is, but Randy has shared some stuff with us, and I think you should watch that space. You should see what Randy's doing over at Heavy Play. It's yeah. it's it's looking cool. All right. Thanks for that, y'all. Let's talk about this week's show. We have a very exciting one because, once again, we are doing a super special listener request episode from one of our top-tier patrons, who also just so happens to be one of our most loyal sponsors, Yes, it's Will from Barrister and Man. Not only does he make amazing fragrance products, but he's also just a good old-fashioned top-tier patron who has earned the rare privilege of giving us, the Rhino Boys, an assignment. This week, Will asked us to do a deep-dive history lesson into some of Magic's most important and infamous sets, so we wanted to make it about modern because that is the heart of our show, and we're going to chat about some of the sets and cards that have defined this format at some of its most pivotal iterations with a special focus on some of the sets that meant the most to us as players too. So it's going to be very cool, and we hope you stick around. 
Yeah, it's funny, Stan, before you got on, Dave and I were chatting and we're like, what is this episode about? Because we wrote it, wrote a bunch of stuff. And we're like, well, like, how do we actually frame this episode? And like the way I was thinking about it is it's basically, to me, the history of modern that isn't about decks, that isn't about tournaments, that isn't about bans and unbans. It's about how the set came to us. And it's well, it's a little form. about bans and unbans. I, there's a couple snuck in there. Sure. I think it's a little bit about the sets that have defined us along the way. Yes. And I think what's cool about this, I mean, we'll talk about this obviously in the actual episode, but it, it, it was really cool to look at the development of the format and like how we got to where we are today by really taking like a really close look at these old important and like impactful sets, both in terms of what, how people engaged with magic, how, like what they thought about, you know, Watsi and the developers. And like, I haven't taken a, you know, I haven't turned my eye towards like shards of Alara or something like that ever. And so like to really be like, what was this about? Like, what were the cards and ideas in this set was actually really cool. I totally agree. And I wasn't even going to mention this, but I'm just going to pull the curtain back very briefly. I'm not sure if the two of you clocked this, but I was up very late last night. I was up writing notes till 2 a.m. Not because I had to, but because I was just having so much fun, like going through the old sets. I could and, tell. And seeing like how they introduced like all these different pieces to the format that have been like very important at different stages of, of even my modern career, which has really only lasted like what? seven eight years i probably started playing modern a couple of years before we started the pod so yeah this was just a fun one to make and i'm grateful to will for giving us the task yeah very cool let's get into that housekeeping really fast so we can actually get into this episode we have a few new patrons we have mtg chicago and matthew d Thank you both for becoming citizens of the Dive Down Nation. We truly appreciate it. We probably, yeah, we couldn't make the show without the Patreon. So we appreciate all you citizens out there. Uh, we also have a new review this week. This is a great this is, one. This is, this is a really good review from uh, Asian Nathan is the name on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> okay. I guess I just have to read this. I don't play modern nor pioneer you know, listen to this podcast <laughs> the hosts are fine but i'm not sure why i keep listening that devon guy is cool devon we know this is your alt account so. <laughs> the headline on this is just not sure why okay not sure why but we got we got five stars do you think this is potentially nathan fielder just leaving like the most awkward <laughs> the most awkward review ever I mean, I appreciate the five stars and, you know, full disclosure, that's the review. Uh, kind words. Um, I do want to hop in here one second. Please. Two things. Newsworthy. One is, De speaking of Devin, Devin won the Modern Challenge this week on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Was it Saturday or was it Sunday? Saturday. With Mono Black Coffers. I think the next time we have him on next week, we'll talk about it a little bit. I know it'll be a little bit later, but this episode is packed, so we're not going to talk about it a ton right now. But it was almost Devin versus Evert in the finals, which was pretty cool. So congratulations to Devin for that. The dive down bump. And congrats to Spike for almost making it. We'll talk about that in the future. Um, also, the Modern Super League started last week oh yeah and that was very sweet to watch and i hope that you'll consider watching that uh i don't have the link handy we'll put it in the show notes yeah i mean if you don't even know what that is it is basically pools of people you know 
playing modern on magic online and it's like, you know, a, a pool paced thing. Then they're going to, you know, go to a championship series where it goes to like the finals and stuff like that. I believe the people in the pools are providing commentary when they're not playing. So it's a really cool model. A lot of, you know, folks that, you know, like Everett, like Doom, like uh, Canister, like Carmen Hardy or Carmen Complarence. Young Dingo was on. Mason Clark was on last week, the first episode that we watched. Anyway, I, I only bring it up for two reasons. One is you should watch it. Two is we are going to sponsor it. We're going to take one of their advertising slots to help them out. And so uh, you might see our names on that. So please uh, you know, tell your friends that we're there, too. We're, we wanted to, to help out as best we can. We imagine many of the people who watch this probably know about the podcast, but why not put some our name in front of some people, but also just give them some money so they can hopefully keep running. Yeah. So Patreon, patreon.com slash the dive down helps you keep us going. We have our store over at the dive down.com slash store. We can get your swag. Like I said, it's getting a little bit chillier eventually. So go get yourself a, I don't know, Stanislav calls them cheeky tokes, I believe now, uh, some, some kind of beanie, uh, you know, stuff like that. You can support us on Manitraders. We have a new Manitraders code. New Manitraders code alert. It is the dive down 23. The dive down 23, the same as our barrister and man code. That goes until the end of the year, thankfully, because it would be weird to have it as 23 in 2024. So you can get 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards over at Manitraders using that. Barrister and man, our grooming and fragrance and soaps partner, the Dive Down 23 is 15% off your first order. That's right. And NRG Plus, our friends over at NRG just give our listeners 8% off their orders with Dive 8. So there we go. We're ready for this episode. Okay, let's get into the let's get into the meat of this banquet. Yes, there's a there's a lot we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot of pages of notes. I'm curious how the pacing of this is going to go. But the way I thought about approaching this when I got into these notes first, which means I get to type whatever I want. And so what I typed about was basically, I thought we could do this in like a couple halves, really. And right, one is, what did we have at the beginning of Modern when it became a format? And then what was printed into Modern as the format progressed? As, you know, after whatever, 2011 or so, when the format became real, what kind of stuff kept coming into Modern and how did it impact our you know, thoughts, feelings, what people were doing, stuff like that? over the cool things that happened. So, you know, we kind of talked about what this episode is really going to be, a, a, a history of modern through the sets and kind of just talking about our experiences with these sets and kind of the cards in them and, and things like that. So, you know, brief history of modern is that it was a you know magic online format in May, 2011, official format, August, 2011, because Watsi was like, yeah, this is going to be our PT format in Philadelphia in September. And so what that meant was that for that first wild PT, the cards you had access to were from eighth edition through magic 2012. I was not playing magic at this time, nor was I, I was okay. So I have a question about this magic online only version of modern. I didn't even know that was a thing until we started making this episode. What was that transition like? What did you always know it was going to convert to paper? No, I, I completely 
forgot about this part as well. I also through the through this uh, episode, I think I've given several different dates for when I became a modern. I have the definitive answer for that later on. I was very much just playing limited at this point in time. Still, uh, I was kind of like a magic online limited grinder, draft grinder, and that was it. Um, I do remember when this happened because some people were very, um, some people really liked Extended, which is the format that used to exist in this space. Some people really hated it. Um, and what happened was I knew that they were testing it. There was a decent amount of buzz around it at the time. I paid a little bit of attention to Pro Tour, but not a huge amount because I didn't really know a lot of the cards, especially the ones, say, pre-Alara uh, Block or pre-Zendikar. So I was paying attention with one eye at this point in time, but I think there was a good amount of excitement around this. I don't think people knew for sure it was going to convert to paper, but they kind of felt like it was going to because people knew that engagement with Extended was low overall. And the problem with Extended was that it was a rotating format. So it had like an endpoint that changed over time. And what they decided to do was instead institute this other format that was more like legacy in that it had a fixed beginning. Mm -hmm. And they felt like that was going to help people uh, be able to do it more. But the interesting thing about it is that, you know, at the beginning of Pioneer, it was kind of the same number of sets. Yes. Right? Shane, is what you determined was that it, yeah. at this time period in 2011, it was kind of like the same as when Pioneer started in, yeah. in set. Number. Yeah. Like if you want some context for like what modern was like when it started, it's like basically the same number of sets, but they had fewer cards because they were still like the large, small set approach to blocks. So right. a lot of the sets were like 150 ish cards as opposed to like, you know, the 250 or whatever that we get right now. So you modern here, here's a, here's some more context. Like modern was so new that Zendikar, the printing of the enemy fetch lands, there were no allied ones. So there was only like five of the 10 fetches. So basically instead of the 22 years of cards we have now, there was just a little over eight when modern uh, was sort of solidified into its nascent format. And yeah, and remember the idea behind what modern was and why it was called modern and all that kind of thing. Do you guys remember? Yes, I this? think I know this one. It was when they converted the old frame to the quote unquote modern frame around eighth edition. Correct. Yeah, so that's why it's called modern, and that's also why they chose that endpoint, which sounds like weirdly arbitrary, but I think from yes. a like from an intuitiveness, I think that there's a there's a case that can be made for this just because it's trying to help people sort in that way. Now, of course, Magic's visual presentation has changed a huge amount in the last like ten years, but uh, that's why. And that's you know, I don't from. think when they converted the border in Eighth Edition, that was the plan. And in, in oh, fact, no. It, it's no. it's not listed in the notes, but I, I'm almost certain that I once saw an interview with Gavin Barhe, who who apparently created modern basically as an assignment from Watsi and determined the format and just kind of, I think happened to realize the elegance of using eighth edition as the starting point. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of eighth edition, this is where I actually wanted to start because it's, it seems like kind of an arbitrary thing to start with, but you know, like you said, it was the birth of the modern card frames that are still used over 20 years later, uh, sort of now, <laughs> now and then. And, Mostly. And, you know, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, if you, depending on your point of view, right, the inclusion of 8th edition and the interesting way in which some of the cards actually got into the set in the first place has 
given modern players a surprising number of important cards that are still relevant to this day. Because so 8th edition was released as one of the you know quote-unquote core sets, and so it just had tons of reprints, as core sets used to do more often. I just want to mention, too, the year... Now, we started in 2011. The year is now 2003. Yes. And we go back to 8th edition. So we're going back to the beginning. It's 2003 yeah. when that set came out. Thank you. And what WotC did in this set is they gave players a voice in what cards were included in the set through voting on their website. Remember, this is 2003. So this is kind of like, it's not the early days of the web by any means, but I think it's fairly novel for them to do this kind of concept uh, on the web back in that day. And those choices even extended to like the art and the flavor text on some of the cards. So there were 12 different pair-ups that they gave people the ability to vote on. I'm not going to go through all of these, but some really interesting ones that, <laughs> that impact us now is instead of having Ensnaring Bridge, we could have had Static Orb. Instead of Birds of Paradise and Vine Trellis, for whatever reason, uh, we could have had Lanawar Elves and Utopia Tree. Instead of having Blood Moon, we could have had Dwarven Miner. No, not Dwarven Mine, Dwarven Miner. So, you know, we have players from over 20 years ago to, to thank for, so that we have, you know, Bop, Blood Moon, and Ensnaring Bridge in Modern. So thank you folks back then. Can you imagine how much different the modern format would be if we actually had Llanowar Elves in it? No. Would it be different? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of Birds of Paradise, Elves would be slightly better? Oh, we yeah. have Llanowar Elves now. Wait a minute. We do have Llanowar Elves in the format, by the way. So <laughs> It got reprinted. Um, you know, and of course, 8th edition also brought us other modern staples that entire decks have been built around, like the Tron Lands, which they hadn't been printed since 5th edition, and they have never been printed into a standard set again since 9th, because they were printed in 8th and 9th. And along with Blood Moon, we had color hosers like Boil and Choke, um, which still randomly see sideboard play, in particular metas, I'm sure have made people mad for decades, so overall a pretty good thing. I mean, honestly, I love the lameness of 8th edition. Like, I love the white card frames. I love the mostly boring reprints. I love the fact that people are still mad that folks voted Blood Moon into the set instead of Dwarven Miner. And, of course, the Tron Lands have allowed one of the most hated mainstays of the format to keep existing for a long time. So I'm happy about Eighth, even though it's super lame. Yeah. I mean, this is super typical of what the core sets used to be. And having had a store, even going back to, like, 5th, edition corsets never sold very well and watsi has shared that story a lot they were all reprints they all they had no thematic um they had no thematic cohesion you know the cards that were in there were often sort of inexplicable and cards that people didn't really want and like it, it was always kind of a weird grab bag and then the white border was the original thing that they wanted to do to make sure that you knew that it was an unlimited print run versus a limited print run and it just aesthetically they don't look as nice as the black borders. I know people kind of mess around with it now because now the hip thing is like they have white borders sometimes. But anyway, this was a super typical corset in that sense as well. I know that, you know, we talked about the card frame a little bit. There was some player furor about that as well, of course, at the time, just because it changed the look and feel of magic cards and people didn't like it and blah, 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 blah. You know, there's a story that I don't know if it's apocryphal about V. Moskowitz walking out of a out of a meeting because he worked at Watsi at the time when they showed the graphics for the court, court frame, just walking out of the meeting. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but that's wild uh, worth noting. 
this this was the format, right? Like this was the the first foundation, the format. And yeah, it is kind of arbitrary, but these there are important cards in here that matter to to all of us. I also kind of feel like if we look at eighth edition, it's it's a window into what happens when players get what they want, quite literally, since people voted on this. And I don't think it's particularly controversial to say that Magic and and Modern, for that matter, has you know, our version of armchair quarterbacks. And, Mm. you know, when the populace decides on inclusions, we seem to get a combination of either questionable choices that include cards that are maybe unfun or or just like plain bad. And, you know, it makes me wonder what would happen if the populace got to make these types of decisions for a modern core set. Like how, how ugly would it get? (laughs) <laughs> don't don't ta- don't threaten Watsi with a good time. They haven't done online polling in a minute. You know they might. They always might. I was playing a little bit in this time. This is when I was first discovering Magic the Gathering. Tail end of like Invasion is when I started, and then right around Mirrodin was when I stopped. And I remember Eighth Edition coming out. I remember a little bit of a fervor on the forums and in my junior high school about the new frame. I have no recollection of the voting <laughs> methodology. Was everyone allowed to vote? Yeah, it's just like on a website. Yeah. So it was just like some web-based thing. Like I found like the archives of it, you know, when I was looking and, you know, just a, a primitive looking website by today's standards. And, you know, they, they just had people vote. All right. But we got to move on into hot on the heels of 8th edition, Mirrodin Block, 2003 to 2004. Mirrodin, Darksteel, and Fifth Dawn had uh, you know this heavy artifact theme. Equipment was brought to Magic. It took us to Mirrodin for the first time. Also introduced Affinity, which would be super important to Modern over the years as well, and making people grumpy in constructed formats for many years. I mean, also concepts like Sunburst, Scry, Indestructible, Modular. I didn't play then, but my understanding Completely was Mirrodin busted. was super in busted. Fact, uh, Affinity, it, my my dad had the store at this time. I was in college, or I just finished college, I guess, actually, so I was just starting working. And he, I remember talking to him at the time, and he was like, yeah, this is the worst time we've ever had for Magic, because Standard is so bad that they need to ban a huge amount of cards. And they didn't have anybody coming out. And like it was enough that I think this was one of the nails in the st- our store actually closing, but um, it was one of the worst times in Magic Standard uh, at, up to that point. So, and it, it also clearly forms a bunch of the currently yeah. banned cards from Modern. So, people had so many bad vibes about Mirrodin that when they started Modern itself, they banned a bunch of these cards. And those include the Artifact Lands, which had to be banned in Standard as well, it's my understanding. Chrome Mox, Cloud Post, Seething Song, Second Sunrise was banned later, Skull Clamp, Microsynth Lattice was banned later, uh, <laughs> and more. Yeah. And we there's a lot of key cards here, like, you know, Arkbond Ravenger, Aether Vile, Chalice, Cranial Plating, KCI. Just a bunch of stuff was in the set, Sword of Fire and Ice, Engineered Explosives, Eternal Witness, randomly. So yeah, this was a really important set that I didn't play, but I think it's you know one of the early sets that really was like, you have to be careful when you do these heavily thematic sets where there's a lot of synergy with the equipment, the artifacts, the affinity mechanic, things like that. And, and you know, pushing mana ramp with like cloud posts and stuff like that. Wow. It's just 
I can't even imagine design. This is what, like early fire design. <laughs> I've heard it said that some designers at the time lost their jobs over the set and its aftermath. And maybe that's schoolyard gossip, though I heard it at an LGS from a grown man. Well, like I said, this was one of the moments where magic felt the closest to just dying because they had messed up the the power level so badly. So when, when people were just upset that like stuff was getting banned off from under them or they were just like, this sucks to play because games are over really quickly and snowballs or... It's both at the same time. It's having to buy okay. cards in order to have them be banned in order to have unfun games that just kind of like you miss like a whole generation. I mean, think about how long people play Magic. There's a huge bunch of people who maybe only play for two or three years at a crack, right? And so if yeah. half of their time is this terrible environment, like they're not going to stay, they're going to go do something else with their free time. And so, um, you know, it was tenuous. It was bad. I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, so many of the cards in this list are all artifacts and you have, I think it's kind of an early warning sign where it's like, Hey, if you do a set that's like heavily colorless and these cards can be played in whatever deck you really want them to be played in, then you, we see the impact of that now, where these are all of our sideboard cards in safety valves because they can go anywhere. Oh, you don't say a colorless payoff card that can go a value engine that can go in a lot of different decks can be trouble. <laughs> All right, let's move on from Mirrodin because we don't want to spend too long on any particular place. We're not going to talk about Kamigawa just so people know we're, we're probably going to skip other sets, but just because it's the first one we're going to skip, we don't have much to say about Kamigawa as far as infamy goes. Uh, you, you know, it wasn't it, loved. Get, I know that. Get at us in the comments if you disagree. Oh yeah. But we're going to, we're going to go on to the next. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that's, I forgot to mention that up front, which is like, look, this is not going to be encyclopedic. This is not going to include every set that you think is important. It's not going to include every card that you think is important because that's really not what this is about. This is kind of like, hey, some highlights of stuff that maybe we played or we thought was cool or you know seemed like it had like it it really was important for the development of the storyline of magic and and that's really kind of what how we approach this. Yeah, still important now was one of my big filters. And that's one of the biggest things about Ravnica, which is 2005 Ooh. to 2006. So Ravnica, you know, the first city playing one of the first thematic, big thematic stories that was kind of on its own, I feel like. You know, they tried it with Kamigawa. Mirrodin was connected to the main story, though. Um, you know, it was released in 2000. I'm double checking right now. 2005 is when Ravnica City of Guilds came out in October. People loved the theme and it brought magic back from a period of relative unpopularity that was headlined by Mirrodin and Kamigawa, both, you know. We kind of understand. We just talked about that. The, the thing that was interesting is that this is where they branded the two-color pairs for the first time. They gave them names. They decided to do this whole kind of like gold story around the whole set. There's lots of different things that had been gold cards before, but this is the first one where they try to give personalities to these two-color pairs and just make that part of the story. But of course, as far as we go from like the spike direction, the really the biggest thing, most important thing about this set, set block is that this is where they figured out a, uh, a good dual land, probably for the mm. first time in a long time. A good mm. playable dual land with re that was reasonably balanced because of the uh, downside of taking the two damage, allowing you to have it come into play tapped. And uh, those are the shock lands. And those are still super important to modern. They're still a key part of the mana base. They've re been reprinted many times here. But this is key and also the fact that it could be fetched in deeper formats going back to you know for people who were playing with odyssey cards you know like in legacy and stuff like that or what was extended at the time um you know that was an important factor in it I as mean, well these 
the best design lands that they've ever done. When I think about it now, I kind of think they are, right? Because if you look at Pioneer, the fact that Pioneer has these as a key part of it and they don't really dominate the format the same way that fetch lands dominate modern, you know, they're in Pioneer, they lead people to be able to play a certain number of combinations. You can play more than two colors sometimes, but you have to really be thoughtful about it. Mostly they enable really good two-color decks. Like, I think that that was what they wanted with these and that's what they are. I mean, I love the fact that they are typed so you can do the things that you can do with like with with typed enablers, right? Type of thing, you know, like even our uh, land cyclers in the latest Lord of the Rings set. I love the fact that they give players a choice whether or not they take you know they take the damage or not. And unlike other duels that maybe just sort of have timing restrictions, where it's like, yeah, if they're in early, then they're untapped. If they're in late, then they're untapped. And I think like you know, it gives people that agency to really kind of make the decision that they need to. And yeah, they're, you know, they, with fetches, they're kind of a lot, but I think they're, they're just my favorite lands. They certainly weren't the only cards from this set that impacted modern or helped define oh it my over gosh. the years. So many. This is the set that gave us basically the foundation of dredge life of the long GGT, which has come and gone and come and gone a couple of times. <laughs> Stinkweed imp, dark blast, Golgari thug, dark confidant was first printed in this set. Lightning Helix, Court of Calling, Leyline of the Void, Spell Snare, Protean Hulk, Utopia Sprawl, Glimpse the Unthinkable, just to name a few. Yeah, so many interesting cards. I mean, I, this set's just so important, I think, to so many people because of, I think it just gave people, like you mentioned, Dave, it gave people like this idea of what these colors were supposed to do, even if it wasn't you know, it, that already kind of was built into the color design, but I think like putting it so explicitly, giving people these lanes for draft and deck construction and stuff like that, I think is, it's really important to give people guides and rails and things like that sometimes. And I think it really encourages newer players to adopt something where it's like, oh, this isn't that complicated. I can just get a black red deck and I have something going on. We also see a little bit of standard then evolving into modern you know if we look at all these dredge cards for instance like this could have been an archetype that players were drafting it, it was an archetype that they were probably playing and constructed and then once it became modern or the format emerged and they were able to pad it with other good on-plan cards like that probably felt really good for people who held on to all of their old Ravnica chaff. Yeah. And what's wild too is I think it's a that's an interesting example, Stan, because Dredge was not designed to do what Dredge did in the end. Like the Dredge deck that came out of Dredge was like not kind of the original conception of what the mechanic was even designed to do. I'm trying to remember like what Rosewater said like their their concept for Dredge was, but it's interesting to see like, yeah, when, once you take this standard mechanic and you expand it into a much larger card set, what people can do with it. And I think that that's kind of like one of the earliest examples I can think of there because, you know, Ravnica was fairly early on. But what about what was after Ravnica? Because this is where things get kind of wild. <laughs> was this right after Ravnica? So, yeah, the thing that was in between Ravnica and Time Spiral Block was Cold Snap, which is one of the wildest marketing campaigns oh, yes. where they said hey we forgot we made this set yes which is so just not true but um but okay yeah so, cold snap was what the second ice age set right uh it was really the third one because alliances was part of ice age oh. as well but okay. anyway 
this this was just marketing and cold snap of course has its cards in it but we're gonna we're gonna skip that for for now for today yeah and let, let me gu- let me walk. let me gush about time spiral yeah because i this is one of the first times i've closely looked at the time spiral planar chaos and future site block and i think that the execution of this set the concept and execution was perhaps one of watsi's most clever ideas so you know conceptually teferi returns to dominaria finds it devastated and barren time is fracturing like people locations objects from the past are appearing and disappearing and so to turn this concept into a physical reality for time spiral there were not only 301 all new cards big old set they had 121 time shifted cards which were entirely pre-miridin reprints but then legal in any set that uses time spiral cards so they were just like hey here's 121 cards from before a mirrodin so essentially before modern in the in this case i mean I guess so there could be eighth edition and stuff like that and they're just you know here they're, they're brought into the set they're legal and anything that uses time spiral so time spiral did stuff like giving us suspend you know tons of cards that we're still using in busted ways today there's you know, planar chaos continue this concept with these alternate reality cards like shifting the color identity of classic cards like wrath of god becomes a damnation force spike becomes manatithe elvish spirit guide becomes simian spirit guide braids becomes a younger blue braids <laughs> perfect <laughs> i i will say really quick before we get off the time shifted cards and completely away from those. Like I, the color shifts are one thing. The time shifted cards, there's not a lot of absolute bangers on this list. Like I'm looking through it right now just to double check. And there's a few things that get played occasionally. But the biggest thing to me is I'm pretty sure this is the first time they did a bonus sheet set. And that was something that has clearly become a major part of the way that Watsi thinks about putting together sets right now from a marketing perspective. You know, we've got the enchantment bonus sheet in Woe right now, for example, and like they're doing that more and more often. But I'm pretty sure this was the first time they did this kind of like also ran sheet that's kind of like fun stuff in booster packs to make them more fun and nostalgic to open. In a way, the time shifted bonus sheet has turned into the list, if you think about it Mm, uh, from that perspective. And then the final set in the block, Future Sight, it continues this wild block with these future shifted cards that they hadn't been printed before, but may appear in a future set. So yeah, they're here, but they may be reprinted later. And so this is where we get something like Tarmogoyf, and it featured reminder text of a card that no one even had heard of before when this card was released, when it referenced Planeswalkers. Planeswalkers. Yeah. So just like, imagine that happening now, where it's just like, yeah, like, you know, uh, dungeons. And then you're like, what, what's, a, what's a dungeon? Well, we did have that happen now. Yeah, that did happen, right? Worth. Yeah, because Atraxa referenced battles yes. in, the, mm-hmm. in that particular set. But that only came, a, you know, a few months later. Lorwyn still is basically a year after, well, it's not a year after Future Sight. It's four months after Future Sight, five months after Future Sight. when Lorwyn comes out. Yeah, that's so same when, concept. They kind of redid it. Yep, they kind of redid it. Um, I will say... This set is infamous. There's a huge oh, there's a huge list of playables here. Like it's gigantic. The number I think of it's cards like 30 at least. You know, Living End is in this set and and uh Chromatic Star is in this set and Narcomoeba is in this set. Grape Shot, Rift Bolt, they're they're in this set. Um Bridge from Below, Street Wraith, Angel's Tom, Grace, Tarmogoyf, of course is on this set. So we've talked about a lot of the cards. Simeon Spirit Guide, the now banned Simeon Spirit Guide is is on this list as well. This set is infamous, though, from another point of view, which is that this is yet another 
perhaps design fail on the commercialization of Magic side and has been sort of infamous in a set that got way too complex for for non-completely enfranchised players to engage with it fully because the theme of it was super meta, right? The theme, the art direction theming of it was very, very meta. It was about stuff going on in the, the outside of the universe and playing with the tropes within magic that most, mostly only um, enfranchised players would know about. And this led to a whole bunch of different decisions that happened later on, which have come kind of under this idea of what was at the time called New World Order, where they decided we have to make magic simpler. And that culminates a couple of sets after this. Yeah, I mean, I think this... It's just a supremely creative idea, and they didn't know necessarily how to rein it in. Like it seems like you can do whatever you want, like designers and developers. Like let's just let's just go ham. Let's let's make this creative idea into reality, uh, and then everyone's like, oh, we can't handle like thirty different keywords in our standard set. Please, this is a little bit wild. I think players would feel differently now, though, when we look at something like. The original Dungeons and Dragons set, where every card had its own unique keyword, <laughs> that were just allusions to D and D, and I think people loved that at the time. Yeah. And I, I wonder what that says about like the player base's evolution. How much of that is players are becoming more sophisticated as they enter Magic, or have they become more sophisticated as the game has evolved? Well, can I tell you one thing that I think fits with what you're talking about, actually, is... So one of the things that I remember being kind of problematic with cards from this era... Again, I didn't play... This was right before I came back. One of the things was they moved away from onboard tricks, having too many things that were on the board that players had to track in a game state, and moved to comes into play abilities is part of what happened with this. And I think that when you look at the Dungeons and Dragons set, almost all of those little reminder text things or whatever they're called, ability keywords, because they're not real mechanics, those are all attached to things that you that are modals, like you make choices about them, or they have little things that trigger mostly when people when they come into play and less so when they're on the board. And that's what happened with some of this too, I think is the real difference is not just the number of keywords, it's that they changed their philosophy away from things that tap to do things being in play quite as much to things that happen when they come into play so you don't have to track them in the future. And that that kind of helped reduce the complexity as well. So I still think even a set like that, even though it looks like it has a lot of words, and like we've said, we, you know, there's been all these analyses of like magic sets now have way more words per set than they used to and all of those kind of things. It's all true. And maybe we're getting returning to another era of like too much complexity right now, maybe. But I think that this was the first time that they really stepped back and said, oh, we have to like fix this. We have to rethink about this. We have to make the game more simple. Yeah, and, and Rosewater talks about this often when he's just like, look, like you have to have some perspective and that no matter how engaged you are and how much in the weeds you can get with these cards and, and, and grok it, there's always plenty of new players who are coming in. And we, we are continually thinking about their experiences and their ability to understand something. And, and I think it's a really you know, high wire act that they, they have to do every time they do a set like that. Like you said, Stan, where it's like, yeah, we can really lean into this D and D concept, but are people going to get it? Like are, are, are people going to engage with it in the way that we want? And I, I mean, I don't envy that task that they have and they, they certainly, well, I, I look back on it and I'm like, yeah, what a great idea. There were plenty of people in the, in the time of time spiral that were like, this sucks. Mm. 
But let's go on to something that maybe sucked a little less. <laughs> Alara Block, 2008 to 2009. Another, yeah, uh, certainly another time that standard is infamous <laughs> during this era. Now, so we're skipping over Lorwyn a little bit, which again had a bunch of stuff that was banned in modern when it started, like um, Bitter Blossom was banned out of Lorwyn. Lorwyn was was extremely infamous because of fairies dominating modern and also to an extent fairies was very good in extended if i remember and so that's part of the reason that some of these cards were banned when modern started was because of extended anyway shards i also think we don't have to talk about this for too long but i do want to note that alara block was really when i came back to magic online randomly oh so it's the best set ever even at the time i didn't think it was a great set but it was with the first one that kind of introduced took the ravnica idea and moved it to shards three color combinations instead of two color combinations so they were like we're going to do a top-down thematic set about what the three color combinations of magic are and those are the things that are by each other right the three they're by each other like esper and jund and naya and all those things Mm -hmm. i started playing this in the second set which was conflux was where i started drafting and um you know i mean the main thing that i wanted to mention about this as far as modern goes is cascade there are a lot of cards in this block but cascade i think at this point is the most infamous part of modern because there are at least three competitive decks that look to break cascade right now and there's always somebody trying to figure out how to break cascade through one way or another i saw somebody on twitter the other day say when are we going to talk about how um, violent outburst is one of the biggest design fails ever in magic and i do agree a little bit because it's so used not for what it's for what it what the text outwardly says it's for which i think is a problem like a uh, player like resonance problem but you know the decks are good and you guys love them so what do you think about that okay i i disagree with the premise i love attacking for five thanks to violent outburst at instant speed i i I would almost say that like alara we're going to talk about some of the other impactful cards or just at least mention them but alara introducing cascade isn't what makes Cascade good. It's they keep printing cards that are meant to be cascaded into. Well, but remember, at least one of the Cascade cards is before Alara, right? Because Living End is in the previous block. And yeah, the <laughs> later ones, then I think they realized, oh, this could be a mechanic we could use. And then that's where yeah. Rhinos comes into the story much later. Here's on. the other bit that's interesting to me when I was looking into this. Cascade was introduced in the final set of Alara block. Yeah. All right. This was big, small, small. The first two sets also introduced Aethersworn Canonist, which saw play once upon a time. Uh, Ranger of Eos, Fate Stitcher, Ad Nauseum, mm-hmm. Elvish Visionary, Wild Nicotl, once banned. A Johnny <laughs> Vengeant, once a control finisher. Once a $45 card. Oh my gosh. Um, Relic of Progenitus, Celestial Purge, Path to Exile, Noble Hierarch, Knight of the Reliquary. Um, Arden, please, we're in... It is in the final set, but that final set also introduced Architects of Will, Bloodbraid, Violent Outburst, Kasali Pride Mage, Maelstrom Pulse, and Thopter Foundry. Big block. Good cards. But that's enough for a Lara block. It was important, but we also need to move on to other things. Other things that I personally think made a huge impression on Magic, and that would be Magic 2010. Really? Which was in 20, mm. 2009. I love when they do that. It's like a new model of a car. It's something that hasn't stopped to this day. They're still doing it. It's one. It's one year off. You're right. They Look, are. Here, here's the thing about Magic 2010. 
it was actually oh i know where this is going transformative to the rules of magic and at least one other thing that we talked about a little bit earlier so magic had been in a bit of a fallow period again is my understanding at this point like most of this era of magic is a little bit of magic either stagnant or on a bit of a downswing right and that goes all the way back to um mirrodin Honestly, so when you think about like five or six years of magic sort of treading water, people are starting to get interested again, but not maybe not hooking as much. Standard is kind of infamously bad with things like fairies, things like um, Jund during the Alara era, that it's a little bit kind of sketchy. Does this happen anymore? Do we have fallow periods? Do we have times of like disengagement? Because I feel like, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but... They, they just sort of figured out ways that magic is always being engaged with because of the ways that they design cards and sets and support commander. And I mean, I like would that. say that standard is in a rough period right now and has been for years. Yeah, but like is the game. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like they just figured out a way to make the, the rest of the game. Drive it. Something that's not just yeah. standard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, we can talk about that later. I, I don't know if that's sustainable necessarily, but it seems to be working right now for what it's worth. Sure. But – Okay, tell us about magic, magic twenty twenty is super important for a couple of reasons. One is this is again when I was when I was paying attention to the game more after having coming dipping my toes back in an Alara, pl- opening my first booster boxes again during twenty ten, and then the next block is when I really started playing a lot after that. But one of the things that made me the most excited about this block is that they reformed the rules in a way that was bigger than they had since 1999. So in 10 years, since 6th edition, they they made a bunch of things that I think are really significant changes to Magic, to the way that Magic was played, to the way the language of Magic worked. One of them is that, so just so you know, in 1999 when 6th edition was introduced, that's when the stack was introduced. That's when interrupts and mana source oh, wow. cards were removed and replaced by instants. That's when the rule that said that tapped mono artifacts had no text on them was removed. You take a look at Winter Orb to see what I'm talking about with that if you want to see the errata. But those were huge changes to Magic in 1999, just so people understand. The stack in particular was, was giant and made it a lot easier to understand. But there was one problem with the stack that I always had, and that's with a concept that was removed in 2010, and that is with damage damage going on the stack being removed as a concept from from the rules yes that that's that's the thing like i just i mean i wasn't around during this but i remember this is one of the the biggest changes that you've heard the most about right we're just like man damn with no damage isn't on the stack anymore so you can't do what is like mog fanatic or whatever like you can't like block and then sack and ping things yes or... so that's the biggest easiest example but what I, the way that i want to talk about this really quickly is there was only one way to play cards with sacrifice and tap abilities or combat relevant abilities right. And that was to get them into combat, to put damage on the stack, and then use whatever ability you had, whatever trick you had, whatever you were going to do. You know, unsummon, remove your creature from combat after damage was on the stack to save it. Those were all things, but have it deal its damage to the opponent's creature then. Oh, so that ain't these right. are all these things that felt really counterintuitive, I think. To me personally, even though I had played Magic for a long time, and I think to new players, because it felt like rules lawyering, because it was like sort of thematically counterintuitive to the way it felt like the game should should work, right? For me, from a decision-making perspective, the problem I had with this was that there was only one way to use your cards correctly. And once you learned that, once you were rules lawyered a couple of times, what you did was you were like a rules lawyer vampire. You went out there and exploited players who understood the rules less than you over and over again 
again until they became rules lawyer vampires too. And then it kind of spread like that. And so it makes this environment where A, I think it feels bad, but also B, it's strategically less rich than where we are right now. Even though the rules are simpler and a lot of people complained at the time of magic being dumbed down, quote unquote, I actually think that having to make a decision between sticking in there with your Mog Fanatic and using it in combat or sacrificing it to do the damage instead or attacking in with it, having it block and then sacrificing it to do some other interesting thing but losing that damage, it's a much more strategically rich moment that I think is more, way more skill testing than what used to be there where there was really only one clearly dominant strategy when you were using cards like this. That made a huge difference in the game, and actually to me coming back to the game, as someone who kind of didn't like damage on the stack, and that happened around the time I stopped playing Magic, for them to come back and remove that around the time that I restarted as well was very interesting and felt like, okay, they are investing in trying to make Magic a better game still by looking at the rules and being willing to change things, and I thought that was really cool. And there were other things here that happened as well. You know, They called the in-playing zone, they renamed it the Battlefield, so things used to say comes into play they don't say that anymore they also enters the battlefield they were trying to make the game mm -hmm. more like storytelling resonant in the rules language as well which is a big like design thing for me at least thinking about like well how do we get every touch point within the game to feel like it's part of the story and also be clear to people when they're playing like that was that was huge for me as well the other thing about mem 10 is that this is the first core set that introduced new cards to it Oh, yeah. So they were like, hey, this isn't just a reprint set. We can also we, we can M20 this up. Yep. And that's where it was. <laughs> Does that also mean it's the first core set that was Black Border? I think it. Yes. Uh, no, no. I believe that ninth edition was Black Border. But but 10th yeah, edition ninth was also has Black ninth is Black Border. Yeah. No. Is that true? Oh, no, I think. Yes. I, no, it's not. No, ninth so, is not, because that's why I have Russian ninth edition, because they were they were the first printing in Russian. Well, keep in mind, the foils in some of these sets were black border, which is sort of some of what I'm remembering, too, which is like yes. even more confusing. But I think you're right, Stan. I think that I think that I think M10 was the first black border one. I'm going to check 10th edition really quick. But yeah, anyway, th these are huge changes to the game in my mind that I think made things a lot better and made modern better as a result. Some of these new cards that you're alluding to were quite important as well. This is how we got Baneslayer Angel and Silence and Doomblade and Burning Inquiry, Elvish Archdruid, and the Allied Checklands. So Rootbound Crag and Glacial Fortress. Yes. The reprints, the reprints also very critical because some of the reprints that appeared in M10 essentially introduced cards into what would then become modern for the first time. So if it weren't for M10, we wouldn't have, potentially, we wouldn't have Lightning Bolt in modern because this was the first time it appeared in the modern era, as well as like Time Warp and Duress. Yeah, this is, I, I remember that Bolt got reprinted in the US standards at some point. And besides being in M10 and M11, it was never reprinted in the standard again. So thank you, old corsets yeah i don't think we should be surprised about that given what happened to those standard like lightning bolt was super important in those standard environments in particular in jund and then later on i think people like they don't even want lightning bolt and pioneer so like it's never going to be in standard again it's too yeah. it's too well, powerful that, that's until wizards lets us vote on their threads account on what's going to be in <laughs> pioneer horizons yeah Let's talk about some just cool stuff. Zendikar, World Wake, Rise of the Eldrazi, 2009, 2010. 
Zendikar, the land of lands. And this block <laughs> added added the enemy fetch lands. Yep. Gave us our first full art basic lands in a standard set. Introduced us to Nyssa. Introduced us to Landfall. Dual colored creature lands. And of course, some Eldrazi's. I mean, what would early modern have been like without the concept of fetch shock. Do you mean this, this gave us the fetches in early modern Ravnica gave us the shocks of early modern. I just don't know what it'd be like. I guess it'd be like pioneer just be slightly worse, uh, dramatically worse. I don't know. It's we can't even, I mean, there's no reason to keep going down that line, but that's, this is what gave us the fetches. Yeah, I believe that that existed already in Extended, depending on what era of Extended you were playing in. But Like from like good, Onslaught? Good or you, oh, you mean from Zendikar. Yes, okay, I got it. Yeah. All right, so this was a popular set. I think people liked it. Uh, I There's a boatload of cards because, you know, it's heavily land-focused. It just had some powerful printings. We had, you know, all of our lands like Valakit, the Enemy Fetches, the Bajuka Bogs, things like that. I think one thing that also aided to the set's popularity was that it had a very important bonus sheet that Ooh. people don't remember that well, but it actually still keeps giving us hits. Um, someone at PT Barcelona a month or two ago cracked open, a, I think, a pack from OG Zendikar, and it had a revised plateau. Oh my because gosh. that's what they did. They put some old I forgot about that. original Dewlands into these packs. Uh, they did more than that. There was there was a candelabra. There was candelabra of Tanos. I think there was a black lotus in packs. I thought it was like, no reserve was, list, but did they have like one lotus or something? Well, they didn't. They didn't reprint these cards. They went and bought cards and put them into the packs. So oh th- they weren't printed. They were just cards that they got. So it wasn't really a bonus sheet stand. And it was also mm. in the. It was only my understanding. It was only in the first couple of print runs that they did this. And then and the other thing is they didn't advertise it. They didn't really tell anybody. Mm-hmm. They just had a they had some kind of Grand Prix or some kind of pre-release at the time where people were just opening these cards. And it was just like, oh yeah, somebody opened the mocks in our thing. That's like sick. it wasn't it, there wasn't any note for like what they were. Uh, it's kind of like what they did with Legends later with Dominaria, right? Oh, yeah. where they're like we're gonna put Legends cards in the packs. Um anyway, but yeah, that was a fun thing that happened at the same time. And it was kind of like all of these things when I was, because this is like I said, when I started paying attention to the game a bit more again, I was like, this is amazing. Like, and it's all this kind of like social media marketing type stuff that started with some of these tactics that's kind of happening here as well. That sounds cool. Yeah. But I mean, here's this hit list of like some key cards and you can imagine like because it's land focused and land fall is, you know, land based, it's kind of universal, like a lot of things that we can use for a while. So like we get stuff like, you know, archive trap and hedron crab and spreading seas, spell pierce, goblin guide, blood ghast, pyromancer, ascension, a huge piece to uh, early storm decks. We have Jace, the mind sculptor, searing blaze, explore nature's claim amulet, Jace, the mind sculptor, Probably the first card that was a hundred dollars in standard. It was a standard card. It was a hundred dollars a pop. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the you know now banned Eye of Ugin, Stoneforge Mystic, Inquisition of Kozilek. We got this is where we get Embercle, the Aeons Torn, a premier finisher for you know a decade plus later. Yeah, I mean, this is also where Kozilek and Ulamog were, of course, the original ones. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, Ancient Stirrings, Splinter Twin. If you've heard of that little little card. Yeah, so there's a lot of cool stuff. Death Shadow. 
Death Shadow. Yes, thank you. Uh, I forgot about that one. Arbor Elf. You also mentioned Stan in the notes. This is kind of where I remember maybe noticing magic again. Like I remember seeing Zendikar. I don't know if I remember seeing it when it was new or if it was like, you know, 2011 or something like that. Like I saw like old packs, but I remember taking notice of magic once again, kind of in this era. And this is when I started drafting a lot on magic online. I drafted enough that I think I had most of a set of fetch lands on magic online, even though I didn't play constructed. All good stuff, though. I mean, hugely important. And this was a set that was a success. I think this is one of the ones where later it became like, oh, well, that Zendikar was the highest selling magic set of all time at, at the time, Ooh. I believe. As we look at Zendikar and some of the blocks that follow it immediately, I feel like we're entering a, a golden era of design in terms of like the impact of the sets, the approach to designing the sets, and like just adding so many cool cards to standard and now modern and um it's hard to imagine like what this period of 2010 to 2012 or so like without it i just feel like modern would be so less interesting there's just so many cards that are banned from this from this era too now but also there's a lot of ones that are still staples as well or cards that were banned and then were unbanned like valakut for example mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so after the Zendikar block and Rise of Eldrazi. Later in 2010, we got Scars of Mirrodin. So we went back to Broken Plane, and we, yeah. we got more broken stuff. Though not the way we thought it was going to be broken, I will note. But let's let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so this set introduced Phyrexian Mana. <laughs> well, only the last one did. Only, okay. only New Phyrexia did. So it was only one small set that had Phyrexian Mana in it. But boy, That's did all it, it took. Boy, yeah, that was all it took, exactly. Yeah, but what else did it have? Mox Opal, Green Sun Zenith, um, some of our important Infect cards, including Glistener Elf and Blighted Agent, Ink Moth Nexus, Karn Liberated, Hello, Karn Father, Birthing Pod, Get Probe, Dismember, Surgical Extraction. So yeah. many dive down episodes made possible thanks to this block. Um, Deceiver Exarch, nice new payoff for Splinter Twin. Yeah, I mean, this set as we've talked about, it's, it's a lot of these individual cards are important, but it really is as far as stuff that impacted or impacts modern still it's the Phyrexian mana concept that we hadn't really had quite before. Cause we had pitch cards as a way to pay for cards without mana. And this is introducing using life as a way to pay for cards without mana. And guess what? It's really broken when you use life as a resource in that direct way. And so some of the cards make no difference, like Norn's Annex is a card that has Frexy mana in the casting cost and doesn't really do much. But then a card like Git Probe that draws you a card and lets you look at your opponent's hand and draw or, and, uh, for two life, the low, low cost of two life, and gets you a spell trigger. You know, that turns out to be broken from being played too much. So it was a fine, fine line between all these. And then, of course, Mox Opal. You know, it just turns out that we can't have Moxes in modern except for ones that are really hard to play, like Mox Amber. <laughs> but, um, you know, Mox Opal and Chrome Mox, two Moxes from Mirrodin, both gone at this point. Yeah. I mean, again, I was not playing during this, but we see the long-term impact of design decisions that are pretty aggressive. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm, I'm happy that... I mean, I, one thing I'm really happy about is that Dismember ever existed. 
because I, I feel like it's definitely provided a safety valve for the format at certain times. And I think that's like, you know, a truly important card. Uh, and along with surgical extraction, I mean, it's no longer, I think, the the force that it once was and maybe should never have been. But it's, it's definitely like cards like that are, are much like artifacts, right? Where it's like, you know, it, it could just, it could be something that gives people just tools that are very important for the long-term safety of the format, along with like really power, powerful enablers, like Ink Moth Nexus is still a card that you have to be aware of and can build around and uh, use to very good effect. Uh, what t- twelve years later? Yeah, yeah. I mean, surgical extraction and dismember in particular become more important as the format gets more efficient, right? So modern is in a whole different era of efficiency than it was at this point in time. Or Well, at this point in time, modern didn't even exist quite yet. It's going to exist in a moment. But the um, the idea that having a one zero mana card that can disrupt somebody's game plan that's too all in on the graveyard, in certain cases, is kind of is a nice thing to have around. I think you're right, Shane. But this is the moment when modern becomes sort of announced. I mean, we finally away. got to the actual beginnings of modern. <laughs> yes. So all the sets before this were things that were made before modern existed. And right now we're going to get into Pro Tour Philly and the set that came came out right after Pro Tour Philly, which is Innistrad. But Shane, did you have any thoughts about Pro Tour Philly before we get there? No, I don't have any thoughts. I, I mean, besides it was it was famously broken. It was famously powerful. It really kind of showed, I think, what a collection of very good players can do given a, the the first set, I think, that's like as big as Modern was at the time, right? Where it's like, hey, you can do stuff with eight years of cards, do something wild, and they did. And I think then the response was like, Watsi's like, well, we have to ban a lot of stuff. And I'm curious how it impacted the development of their sets, you know, I guess, what, two years down the line after that, right? And I guess we, we kind of find that out. Yeah, that that's a really interesting observation, chain that I hadn't connected of, like, the impact of PT Philly then waterfalling into an entire design philosophy that they have to, I think to some extent have to consider like what's it going to do to modern yeah. even if they're not designing directly for it can i just read you guys the top eight of pro tour philadelphia really quickly 2011 yeah i remember i think five of the decks okay it's splinter twin by samuel Estrati, which is a deceiver exarch splinter twin list it looks a lot like what we would expect if splinter twin existed at that point in time counter cat from josh utter layton which is um, Noble Hierarch, Tarmogoyf, Wild Coddle. It looks a little, it's sort of a uh, Bant esque deck, but it has, like, it's got a bunch of different cards. It's got Bant Charm, it's got Lightning Helix, so it's sort of like a four color pile deck. You have Sam Black on Mono Blue. In fact, this is the infamous Blazing Shoal pitched Progenitus to be able to. <laughs> to make my Ink Moth Nexus or my Blighted Agent hit you for 10. In fact, or also pitch Dragonstorm to, to Blazing Shoal to do that. Um, Mono Red Affinity, which is what you would expect from one of the proto affinity lists. It's Mox Opal, Cranial Plating, Ornithopter and Memnite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Breach Post. So this is four Cloud Post, four Glimmer Post, because Glimmer Post had been printed in Scars of Mirrodin. So we had eight posts in Modern at the time. It hardcast Emrakuls. It did all kinds of bad stuff. It also had Primeval Titan in it. So it was just kind of like making a massive ramp spells. 
uh, Pyromancer's Ascension. There's two decks here listed by uh, under Pyromancer Ascension, which is just Storm, by the way, and then another Splinter Twin from Alessandro Portado. I got five words for you, David. That's a lot of cantrips. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't count how many preordains there are, but there's... Um, a lot of these decks just started with four ponder, four preordain. Like, that was yep. where they built from. <laughs> yeah, it's totally true. I believe it's five of them have four ponder, four preordain to start. It could be four. But anyway, this is just high level. So, yeah, a lot of cards that were banned after this. So what happened after that? Innistrad. Ooh. Mm. Innistrad block was what came out in 2011. Shane, do you remember this is the, probably yes. the first time you played Magic? Yes. I do remember this. I With remember me? this precisely. Precisely. Yeah. I remember coming over to your house and you being like, hey, I got this box of Innis Magic cards. Uh, do you want to play like we can do some like this thing called sealed, right? And then it was like, yeah. okay, uh, sure, let's do this. And I, I'm sure I had no idea what I was doing. Huge set, people love this set. Liliana the Veil. This this doesn't have quite as much like I just have it does have one broken mechanic, I guess, in the sense that it brought flashback to um, modern in a in a big way. But it's got Liliana, it's got Snapcaster Mage, Stony Silence, Geist of Saint Traft, Champion of the Parish, Unburial Rites, Enemy Checklands. You know, at this point, I feel like the individual cards are a little less powerful than they used to be, but still Snapcaster Mage and Liliana the Veil forever were known as like powerful pillars of modern and still exist in people's brain space as powerful pillars. I think even though they're not as good in the format anymore as they used to be by even a long shot. Uh, for me, this was a defining moment in magic because uh, I was getting deeper into it. But also this is the first time that we had double face cards, oh, which yeah, was kind yeah. of like a mind blowing thing <laughs> at the time. And then the other thing is that this was the first set that I remember that had really strong top-down design. I suppose that Kamigawa was supposed to have top-down design too, but maybe this pulled it off in a way that people felt like was more re resonant and also maybe more like of the time because they had sort of timed this a lot to align with the big vampire craze of things like... Um, Twilight? What am I thinking of? Twilight. Yeah, they had sort of aligned the set with the cultural <laughs> zeitgeist in the right way to make people go, ooh, Magic did a horror set. Let's do it. This is like the set everyone said they missed, right? Like, if mm -hmm. they weren't playing Magic, everyone's like, oh, I heard how amazing the limited format was, and then if you play Modern, you're like, oh, man, I could have, like, gotten my Lilianas and Snapcaster Mages, like, in the standard set? Like, oh, wow, like, I could have been doing, like, the the unburial writing type stuff or playing with Geist back when Geist was good and, or, you know, drafting yeah. spider spawning or something like that. And I think this is the thing that they clearly want to go back to this well a lot. They've gone back to Innistrad, what, twice more since then? Yeah. Uh, and they're planning to one more time, even I think on top of that. Am I right? Or I think there's, I think it's a not. new horror set that they announced, like a new horror uh, environment, I believe. Oh, okay. It's I a think, haunted which is a house. Good idea. Yes, because I mean, the, I think the plane is a haunted house. I think is what the, the idea is. <laughs> the plane is a haunted house. That's so weird. Because the returns, I think, have not gone to the heights that I think we were at least kind of told about in this old Innistrad. I set. certainly think that the returns to Innistrad have been less successful than the returns to Ravnica, for what it's worth, and in. in thematically but that's another story uh anyway this set was powerful stan nicely pointed out in a later note here in the notes that there were way more cards that i didn't that weren't mentioned there was lingering souls and thalia thought scour 
Daryl's Messenger, Undying Evil, Faithless Looting is in this set, Strangled Root Geist, Young Wolf, oh. Huntmaster of the Fells. I mean, there's just an incredible amount of cards in this set, really, when you think about Miracle Cards, Restoration Angel. A lot of these don't get as much play as they used to, but they are still broken payoffs like Grizzlebrand or super, super important cards like Cavern of Souls that came from this set. Again, I none of these are super duper connected to set mechanics in a way that some of these other sets are, but these are very good cards, you know. I guess Flashback and Undying are probably the two main ones to note. So RTR Block is next. That's 2012-2013. This is the first time that Magic really returned to one of their standalone planes. And I think that this led to a precedent of them saying, hey, we're going to reuse a bunch of stuff going from now on. What about Scars of Mirrodin? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I totally forgot about Mirrodin. <laughs> Mirrodin was the first time. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So I think this just continued the trend of saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to start reusing planes that we've put work into do doing the world building. We can do another set there and make it interesting and make it cool. What about 20 years of nonstop Dominaria? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's nonstop. They didn't go to other places until mm -hmm. after that ended, kind of. Other than Olgotha or whatever for Homelands. So, yeah, okay. Dave, were, were you playing? Uh, you were playing during RTR then, right? Yeah, RTR would be kind of like when I was getting pretty deep into drafting. It's also the first time I went to a Grand Prix Ooh. since the first time I was doing these. So I went to Grand Prix Chicago, which was modern, by the way, Grand Prix 2012 in November. I only played drafts. I played side drafts. I went with a bunch of people that I knew from one guy that was in Cleveland who I used to play with at my store when I was growing up. And I went with his friends. They stayed at my apartment and stuff like that. Uh, but I went and did side drafts while they played in the main event. What was the player base's reception to going back to Ravnica? Were they like, sweet, we love you know old Ravnica. I either wasn't playing or I heard how good it was or I really loved it when it was out type thing. Like, Were people like you think is equally receptive to the concept? Yeah. I think people were really excited about it at the time. They were like, it makes sense. Sweet. Yeah, it was, what, like seven seven years, six years after the original? So it felt like a good amount of time, I think, had passed. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing for me here was just we reprinted Shocklands and Deathrite Shaman is in this set. <laughs> Those are probably the most important things from it. And, um, you know, Deathrite Shaman was legal for only 18 months in Modern before it was banned. And then it was banned, of course, in Legacy as well. Legal and Pioneer, because they don't have fetch lands. But... Um, it, you know, it was a key part of dominating decks within there and just, you know, it, it completely dominated. It made Jund a whole thing. Jund was the deck that actually won Grand Prix Chicago in 2012. I think Josh Hunter Layton won it with a four call with a lingering Jund, like Jund with lingering souls, which if you want to think about like a memory hole that we could go down that doesn't, you know, there's no chance of that type of deck doing anything <laughs> right now, but value, baby. That's what it is. I, th I think there's one other card from this block that is very important, and that's called Supreme Verdict. Though there are plenty of other playables, too. Like, we get Rest in Peace here. We get Abrupt Decay and Dreadbore and Boros Charm, Voice of Resurgence, Wear and Tear, Burning Tree Emissary. Like, a lot of good cards. But I think in the same way that uh, Sh Shockland reprint was helpful, in the same way that Deathrite sort of, like, open Jund, Supreme Verdict to this day, just remains like the best Wrath that we have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, Wraths aren't as important, but it was super important for a long time uh, in Modern, and it's still important in Pioneer, for example. 
Stan, you have a note here about how you feel like this starts to see a little bit of a shift in design philosophy. What do you think you feel like changes you look at the cards from this set? Yeah, uh, you know, I feel like even if we look at some of these most impactful cards, the list starts to shrink a little bit. And I'm starting to pick up on a little bit of a vibe of power level being downshifted, rare lands, very desirable rare lands, maybe carrying a little more weight in terms of attracting players and, and more importantly, buyers. And maybe we're starting to see this transition of we don't necessarily need to put higher power level into standard sets because it is impacting modern now, which is becoming a premier format for the game. And this, you know, to some extent, this with a, a reprint set that's going to come shortly thereafter is starting to give shape to a, a product philosophy that I think we see to this day. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we should move on to that set because I think it is Im important to think about uh, Modern Masters 1 came out in 2013. Okay, I, I, I want to ask a question of, of you, Dave, because I know you're more engaged than any of us at this point. And what was Modern's level of popularity? Like Stan called it, you know, one of their premier formats, but I don't really know, like... Were people still primarily playing like standard or other formats? And then like they'd go into mod modern was like a super enthusiast thing because of like what the budgetary restrictions of it or the card availability. Like where are we when MM1 comes out? I think it's more the latter. I mean, I MM1 is what led me to start paying, start really thinking about building a modern deck. So I've been paying attention to it before I knew that my acquaintances that I had been talking about magic because I didn't have a lot of magic friends in Chicago at this point. So I was talking to people who I had used to play magic with back in Cleveland. You know, it was right around return to Ravnica that I was like, or modern masters one that I was like, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to find an LGS that I like, and I'm going to start hanging out there and try to meet some people. And that's how I met like a lot of the people that introduced us, like the people that introduced us to Stan, basically Scott Kane and kind of that whole group of people that hung out at brainstorm, RAP brainstorm. Um, the, so I would say that it was something that people were interested in, but I don't know if people really saw it as part of their identity. Mm -hmm. Grand Prix Chicago, I think, had a typical attendance for a Grand Prix at that time, which was over a thousand people in the main event. That was normal for for main events then, between a thousand and fifteen hundred. Uh, I could double check what it was, but it felt like, hey, it was like an attended and enjoyed. And look, the reason I call it a premier format is because they're having GPs. They're having PTs and GPs. And oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doubting the take at all. No, I'm just saying, like, I'm, even if they have that, I'm curious, like, what the engagement with that was. You know what I mean? Like, But I don't think we're anywhere near the point where what happens maybe three or four years later where it's the most watched format. It's the most, you know, Grand Prix that are modern have twice the number of people watching it as Grand, or like Star City Games events that are modern have more people viewing it than Star City Games events that are standard. I'm pretty sure that standard is still like leading the way at this point. And this is an interesting, if kind of boring era of standard, you know, where you go from Innistrad to return to Ravnica block to Theros block and you get the like, you know, this is mono black devotion. This is like all of these things that I think were pretty popular times in standard, even if people, you know, at the top end, people are sort of annoyed with the way the format actually worked. But 
as Stan mentioned, there wasn't this incoming philosophy in modern that was like, hey, if we make some of the older cards that have gotten really expensive more available, maybe more people will play modern. And also, it's a revenue stream for wizards as well to to unlock some of that reprint equity as Seth from uh, MTG Goldfish and so many other people have talked about. But this is, you know, this is the first all reprint non-standard set that wizards had not ever d did, but had done in a long time. Okay, so they had done the problem with reprint sets with Magic is that a long time ago they had done a set called Chronicles that I'm sure you guys are all familiar with that had totally Intimately. tanked the market. They had gotten sued over it. It had a lot of it had to do with where the reserve list came from because printing these things in white border had tanked the value of some of the cards in Legends, for example, that were bad cards but were valuable because they were scarce. So this was all tied up in where the reserve list really comes from originally. And so this is one of the first times that Wizards said, okay, we did the reserve list. We're now beyond the reserve list. The end of the, what we said the reserve list was going to stop. Now we have this equity built up of these cards that we can reprint, and there are a bunch of cards that are valuable that people want. We're going to do a set based on that. And this was also the first time that I remember that they had, they mess around with a premium MSRP, mm -hmm. which was, I'd like to tell you what that premium MSRP was of modern Masters one. Anybody want to know how much the MSRP was? Yeah, six ninety nine. I was gonna get seven bucks. Yeah, we got there. Yeah, six ninety nine a set. Packs were three ninety nine at the time, and I remember people being like, "Oh my god, six ninety nine a pack for sets." You guys have no idea what's coming. Twenty thirteen, Dave. No idea what's coming. Well, back then, a can of Coke was like a nickel. <laughs> In twenty thirteen, I said, "Give me five no. bees for a quarter." Uh, no, no, Dave. I remember. You remember, do you remember this, Dave? Uh, just in terms of some price context, too. So I started playing again like a year and a half after uh, Modern Masters One came out, and we mm -hmm. went to a store. I forget the name of it. And Hot Sauce. You went to Hot Sauce. Was it Hot Sauce? Uh, yeah, the yeah. one in Chicago. And I remember seeing on the wall. I was like, "What is? What is that? Why? Are, why are these packs twenty dollars?" And you were like, oh, yeah, these are these are like really cool reprint things. And they sold out and they didn't print a bunch of them. So they got really expensive. And I think like I had I think it was around your birthday. And so I bought you a pack for your birthday and right. and you opened doubling season. That was my first engagement with uh, super premium packs and magic. There you go. Guess what? I opened a double doubling season in Wilds of Eldraine the other day, too. Oh, man. Full circle. Weirdly. Full circle. But anyway, yeah. So this is them printing you know, they're not printing things directly into the older formats quite yet, although Commander predates Modern Masters by a little bit. So the first Commander decks that added cards to Legacy were a couple of months before Modern Masters. So that was vaguely starting, but it wasn't really... It wasn't something they were doing on purpose, I think, at that point in time. They were just like, we want to make these commander cards playable somewhere other than commander so they can be played in Legacy. And then they went, wait, they can also define the format, but that's a whole other podcast too. At the time that Modern Masters 1 came out, Tarmogoyf, which was the, the key card of the set, was 100 to $110 on Goldfish, and it went up because I think that this set ended up making Modern more popular. And by the time that Modern Masters 2 came out, they were like $200 a piece. Yeah, this this was like the the increased supply increases interest, but the supply was nowhere near enough because it was the first time they'd done something like that. So like Modern Masters yeah. 1, like I said, like you know just a year later was another $20 packs, like almost 3x, you yeah. know what I mean? Right. 
So we don't have to talk about it forever, but you know, now that we're in reprint land, basically, and how to figure out how to manage the, the back catalog of cards that are worth money that Magic has, this is one of the first sets that really did that. This in a combination, in combination with Commander precon products, I think that this these are the two like beginnings of that whole philosophy of magic, that whole revenue stream of magic that people love or hate or get annoyed with, or I don't even know half the time, but, um, you know, it's certainly something that we all think about now. So now we get to the best part of the show because I'm playing magic. I think Stan's, <laughs> I think Stan's playing magic. Shane has entered the picture. It's me, your friend, Shane. Uh, so cons of Tarkir, fate reforged dragons of Tarkir. September 2014 till early 2015, the cons block and specifically cons of Tarkir was just like this incredibly popular time for Magic, at least in my eyes and my memory and the sales numbers that I remember being quoted a lot. Like people were really engaged uh, with Magic uh, during cons and including me. Like, I, like the thing that happened, Dave will remember this well, I'm sure, because I, I think I was like, hey, we've played a little bit of Magic, Dave. People I know are talking about Magic. The game seems like it's getting more popular. And I was like, Dave, I think I want to get into Magic. Do you remember where we were when that happened? No, in my brain, it's your house, but... we were. I believe that we were out in front of Emporium in Logan Square at like 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> and we were out with everybody, <laughs> our friends, and you and I had like a moment outside... I'm not going to say why in you. and you were, we were talking about that and you were like, yeah, I think I want to get into magic. And I was like, I can make this happen for you. But Stan, I'm only bringing it up <laughs> we, because Stan, we can make this happen. You and I were supposed to, we, we met, played some at Emporium, I believe. Right. The last time you were in town. Yeah. <laughs> Emporium is important to dive down lore. I don't think it was open at, at this point, though, yet. Like, I don't think the Emporium brand existed. I'm I don't think so either. I'm going to have to check. It's probably yeah. like Coles or like you, the Owl. Yeah, you guys, were, you guys were at Gaslight. That's what it was. You went to the Gaslight we Cafe. In the middle of the night? <laughs> Let's just talk about all of our favorite Milwaukee Boulevard Eater, spots. Eater Chicago, July 21st, 2014. Look around Emporium Logan Square opening tonight. We were oh, there oh, two or three okay. months after it opened. You're right. Had this moment. Okay, so anyway, Crazy. enough enough about me. Uh, so this introduced the five three-color clans of Tarkir. So these new like wedges not only gave names to all these like stuff that was called like rug, bug, America, junk, but like you know much like Ravnica, it gave people like these really identifiable build-around deck concepts. Like especially in standard, like you could just be like, I'm going to play a Jeskai deck using like these Jeskai cards. I'm gonna build around Mardu, like I'm going to use Butcher of the Horde and other, all these other, and like Crackling Doom. And you know, you're going to try to make a teamer deck out of Savage Knuckleblade and realize it's not that good. But it's one of the, another one of those things where it's like, hey, here's some rails for for us to guide you. Some of them might not be great. You know, you're going to get Siege Rhino for your Obzon deck, uh, things like that. And you're, you know, here's Jeskai Ascendancy to build around. The world sort of felt like your oyster during cons and really importantly too in terms of the financial draw is cons reprinted the allied fetches 
from Onslaught. So players could now run even more of these in their modern decks to then fetch up the lands they needed. You know, Khan's also introduced things that we still know and love about magic prowess, delve, <laughs> and, you know, cards like Monastery Swift Spear, which, you know, immediately go into burn. Uh, we have things like Siege Rhino making the Obzon decks in Modern incredibly popular in early 2015. They had this short window of being really good. Three of them made the top eight of PT Fate Reforged, for instance. And, you know, the, I think the impact of the Delve spells, too, was really huge. I wasn't playing Modern yet, but I remember hearing about sort of the impact of this, like Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise immediately impacted, uh, you know, is it Delver decks and like these uh, Just Kai Ascendancy decks? And so they got banned really quickly out of the format. I mean, every set, every like almost every deck wanted to run treasure cruise i mean burn was running treasure cruise at this time for what it's worth so just an aside but for sure and for me this is when like i noticed modern and like i was like maybe i should dip my toe in this format and like for some reason like i think my first deck that i played i think it was on cockatrice was like esper mentor and like you know it's just like removal permission hand disruption and some Monastery Mentor and Snapcaster Mage and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know. Stan, do you remember when you started getting back into Magic and when you started thinking about Modern? Well, I was getting back into Magic around this time. Um, Nick's block was wrapping up. Um, and the first new set I witnessed and I, I think like cared enough to like go buy fresh packs was Cons. M15 sort of passed me by, so maybe like M15 was the set that was in stores when I bought that fateful pre-constructed deck. Um, in fact, thereafter, Fate Reforged was my first time drafting, and then uh, Magic Origins was actually my first pre-release, and we have many fond memories of, oh, yeah. of those days. I, I will say, like, I remember the attitude around MTG was very vibrant in this time, yeah. just from meeting people. It, at the LGS, like it was, it was positive and it was kind of like uplifting. Um, and I think part of that had to do maybe with the fact that Magic hadn't really entered the pop culture mainstream in a way that it has right now. And I don't think that's just like Magic's fault. I think like the popularity of D and D has contributed to Magic's sure, growth, yeah. and like, and card games have sort of gone through a boom. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, of course, because it's the time that I have the most visibility on. It seems you know novel to me, and it seems important to me. I'm sure that Magic had plenty of things that were like cons, but I just remember going. You know, I went to the store multiple times a week. It was always packed. Like the draft environment always had like two pods going, and that's the kind of thing. Like, I don't know if that still happens in the same way especially like for you know certain certain draft formats i don't think we're firing two pods at even my like popular lgs but i could be completely wrong i'm sure people have different mm -hmm. perspectives than i do but it definitely felt good in chicago at the time what do you think may have contributed to this like very attractive period around this cons block because from my perspective like after not paying attention to magical gathering for a more than a decade and then just kind of like picking it back up on a whim and seeing cons come out like it felt like using asian mythology and, and dragons and like martial artists and mysticism 
was a really fresh, exciting aesthetic that fit into the fantasy sci-fi adventure themes of Magic the Gathering, but also felt really novel. And maybe that's because Cons was a new new domain or a new plane and they got to do a lot of new stuff with it. But like the cards almost have like a certain sheen to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I think you are waxing more poetic than I would. I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying by any means. I think it's that people like rails and people feel mm. comfortable with rails and they also like uh, fetch lands. But whenever I opened a fetch land in a booster pack, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? Oh, yeah. Dave, Dave what, do you, what do you probably have a more perspective than we do? Oh, I think it was an all-timer draft set that led into a pretty good standard format that had important staples for later formats and you could play them pretty powerful decks as a result of the fetch lands you know like that's that's where it was at for me you could play kind of powerful sets in standard or decks in standard you could add these powerful things to your decks in modern and it made that whole format level up in a real way um i also think that morph is one of the best limited mechanics ever and so i think that that made the set a lot better for people to um to draft and so that was just a fun thing for people to do also i think we were just young and didn't have many responsibilities yes. in our yes, brains at it. that time and so it's just it's about our own youth when we think about this as well although i was the young age yeah. of 34 at this time so <laughs> <laughs> so that's young. how old i am now yeah you, your note about power is interesting dave to me because I, you know we look at some sets that are high power level and them pushing people away like we talked about that with yeah. Mirrodin, for instance, um, or, or, you know, other sets that like caught Worldwake or, or maybe Zendikar, where it's just like the cards are so powerful, they had to be banned. Um, and of course, the Delve cards had to be banned in, in Modern. But there, you know, Cons demonstrates that there's a way of doing high power that is fun and, and engaging to people and keeps people coming back for more. Um, and, and maybe like it has to be a really good limited environment to yeah. do so. I also think that it's, it's worth noting that the fun times of cons and maybe even Fate Reforged turned into one of the worst standard formats ever later when there were fetchable duels in the, in the format with it. So when you were just fetching basics, the fetch lands were pretty fun. When the Battle for Zendikar lands showed up, these, these, this format got bad, really bad, and really expensive. So... I disagree with the premise. Yes, it was expensive. I think it was one of the most expensive standard sets of all or formats of all time. It wasn't a bad format though. It was really fun. Yeah, it was just inaccessible. Yeah. yeah. I think for yeah, me, I would put that as bad. But I think we've spent enough time on cons. I think it's time for us to kind of warp through the last because as Stan noted earlier, some of the sets start having bigger and smaller impacts on modern at the same time in a way. So there's three bullet points I want to hit really quickly that I think are important from this 2015-ish to 2019 range. One is Oath of the Gatewatch in 2016, which brought oh, yeah. one of the most broken pro tours ever, which is you know still known as Eldrazi Winter. This is your Eye of Ugin, Thought Not uh, Seer, Reality Smasher, Eldrazi Mimic era where you know the set came out then they had a pro tour and people had there was one star city games event that i remember between the set coming out and the pro tour and i was like wow people are going to cast use heartless summoning to cast eldrazi and do all this really cheaty stuff and no it turned out to be even worse because they used i have Ugin and a bunch of other things to just have colorless decks 
that was a nightmare that led to a bunch of bands and that's still infamous. They also, this is also the time that they banned Splinter Twin, which is, um, you know, still a pain point for many people who play modern at this point in time. Aether Revolt in 2017, I think is notable just because it brought us one of the best interactive spells that we've had in a long, long, long time. Um, and, pro and still kind of defines the format in Fatal Push. You know, we hadn't had any single yeah. mana removal that was really great added to the format since Path to Exile, really. So this tr this kind of duality of Path to Exile versus Lightning Bolt as being your one mana interaction op options, adding one in black kind of opened up the format a lot to a couple of different things. Um, in my mind, it's mostly got to do with Grixis Death Shadow and the rise of that deck, but I was looking through deck lists the other day, and Shadow is actually around a little bit before that, didn't always play at main. Mm -hmm. Still, in my mind, it helped these kind of hyper-efficient decks kind of coalesce around one mana removal options, so that's 2017. Guilds of Ravnica, of course, is super important to us because it's when we started the podcast, and it's where uh, Arclight Phoenix was, and so that was a whole thing as well. Um, I do think that this is a little bit of an interesting turning point before we get to the next moment, though. I mean, I think it's interesting that they Watsi had such ability to wait six years between returning to Ravnica multiple yeah. times. Like, you know, we're already going back to Eldraine, like, what, yeah. four years later? They've said that they're going to do returns more often. You know, like they're concentrating on building stories around 10 or 12 different worlds, which I think is smart for them. So they don't have to start over every time. But, you know, hopefully it doesn't get too weird with that. We did get a glimpse at some possible futures for magic planes with the battles as well. You know, there's all these battles for planes we've never been to, which is sort of like planting seeds about what those places could be about, which could be interesting as well. Dave, Dave you said that this was a turning point uh, going back to guilds? I'd say so. I mean... From my perspective, guilds and really the printing of Phoenix um, was, I think, when the discourse surrounding modern got kind of soured and negative. And maybe I'm overlooking the impact of Eldrazi Winter, but it just felt like Phoenix was the first time every set brought with it banned discourse. Um, and perhaps part of that has, also has to do with the fact of like what came immediately after Guilds of Ranica. Yeah. <laughs> like just, just a, f a banger after banger of like crazy OP stuff. Uh, but I, I think like maybe people are starting to recognize like the format is, is changing very, very frequently and, and standard sets are becoming powerful again and, and defining modern in a way that the last few years they just hadn't. Do you think this was like a trickle down too, potentially of like the impact of like Kaladesh standard and things like that? Where just like the concepts of Watsi responding to power level through bands was sort of be like increasing fairly rapidly? Yeah, I think so. And I think that this was this is obviously all leading up to us talking about 2019, which lives in infamy because of fire design, right? So there was a this kind of mm -hmm. pause and huge impact in modern between 2016 and 2019, or at least there were these moments that it was like, oh, Eldrazi was a huge impact, so we're going to fix that. Oh, there was Fatal Push. That was a good thing, blah, blah, blah. We're going to fix some stuff here and there. But that three-year period was m vaguely stable in modern in a lot of ways. And then you get to fire design where all of a sudden every set, like Stan was saying, has lots of things that impact modern and lots of things that impact pioneer, which 
you know, becomes a format not too long after this, towards the end of 2019, I think is when they, they announced Pioneer as a format, and also standard cards, and they're good across every format, and you're kind of like, oh, I got to play against everything. And this run continues. We're going to stop this, this episode in 2019, because there's three important things that happened in 2019. One is War of the Spark, one is Modern Horizons 1, and, one is, and the last one is Throne of Eldraine. Obviously, War of the Spark and Throne of Eldraine are all about fire design, really kicking this idea of, wow, we have some kind of like sameness across the formats because the cards are so good and standard that we have to implement them in multiple formats. And the Modern Horizons is, hey, we're going to print cards directly into Modern so that there is some shakeup in Modern over time so we don't get these periods where it feels like it's very similar decks kind of being good all the time. But what do we think about the legacy of those two things? One, cards going directly in. Two, standard sets being powerful enough to impact modern all the time. Uh, this is where I get slightly more overtly negative than I have been for the rest of the episode. Or it's like, it sort of just feels like, Hey, we need to print really powerful cards to sell more packs and move, you know, move the needle. I think this is when like, I think people started talking more aggressively about like, you know, Watsy stakeholder motivations and things like that, where it's just like, yeah, we need to sell things. And the way we can sell things is by, you know, couching it behind the concept of, of making good sets and making powerful sets. But I think that, you know, the impact of that had a lot of negativity around it too. And so it's like, it's like, I get it. Like, you know, it's this, we're, they're in this to sell cards, but I think like, I think this is when people sort of became at least more disheartened about the the concept of what the balance between a for-profit company and the desires of the player base. It did, in my memory, contribute to a somewhat exciting period as well, where things were just like constantly changing, either through the influx of power or the aftermath of bands, where every six months or so, they had to do something to like clean up their mess, but the post ban environment and, and the post new set environment was always just like a totally different format. Um, so on the one hand, you had people lamenting that modern is rotating, but on the other hand, I think it just like made for us modern diehards at that time. Like this is when we started the show also like we were, so engaged and it just like there's always something new to talk about something new to strategize around and like just tons of new decks to like wrap your head around too some of which still exist to this day yeah i think that you know obviously we're not gonna we're saying that we're stopping in 2019 but if you think about what happened after this you know 2020 pandemic people were playing mostly magic online theros beyond death makes an impact in modern and then so does so does ikoria and then it kind of goes on a little bit after that before fire design starts to like taper back off and maybe we're now in an era where standard sets don't make as much of an impact as modern as they used to but we're fully on board with modern rotation because we have modern horizons 2 we got lord of the rings that comes into the format next year we're going to have modern horizons 3 like it's it, it feels like this is the moment where they kind of said, oh, we don't really want to mess up standard that much, but we do want to keep modern engaging. So we're just going to almost treat modern like it's a different thing than, than standard. Yeah. And we're going to design cards that fit for it specifically, and we're not necessarily going to put those into standard. And it is what it is. Um, and there are good things and bad things about that, I think. I mean, the, the worst thing about it for me is that the cards are 
pricey. Like they're pricey yeah. in this thing, and they, you know, they they sell. They're going with this premium model for the Horizon sets and for the Lord of the Rings sets, and maybe it's just like a little too premium, you know, because mm-hmm. the really good cards are like seventy five dollars a piece, like the One Ring or whatever it is right now, and. I don't know if we need quite all that. Like, isn't there a way to get it a little bit lower? But, um, you know, it is what it is, I guess, for the moment. Yeah, I feel like this is like a bummer of a way <laughs> to... Yeah, I don't want to end like this. I so still think I, the I'm gameplay is good. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, the gameplay is good. But here, here's a positive, like, little question for us to to chat about as we close this episode. Looking at this history of Modern's various impactful and infamous sets... Which set do you guys think did the most good for the format? The most good? I guess, how do we define good? I don't know. Dave, I'm going to let you have this first. I mean, it's cons, if you think about it that way, just because it, it balanced out the fetch land imbalance that we had in the, in the format, I think, as far as just making it fairer. Now, fetch lands are the key to modern. They're the, they're the best part of it and the worst part of the format lots of the abuses come from fetch lands but the fact is at least everybody has access to all of the pieces now and whatever color combination they want to play and that is something we didn't really have you know we didn't talk about new capenna we didn't talk about new capenna with try introducing triumphs Ugh. to it and uh no, and, no you're oh, wrong wait i'm oh, sorry Acoria introducing <laughs> introducing yes. triumphs and then capenna finishing it but yeah yeah that that's part of the whole soupiness that can happen but i do think the fact that the mana is balanced in this format is probably the fairest thing about it at the moment. I don't know. You realize that we didn't talk about companions at all, by the way, from Akoria. Well, that's why I wanted to stop at 2019 because yes. it, that's why I said Akoria made an impact. And oh yeah, I know. I know. It's just, it's just so. like, yeah, like we can't be completionist here. Just like, I'm just thinking about, man, so, so many wild cards and cards. It's also card just contests. too fresh. And this was about history. Yes. You exactly. know? But I think, I think the ones that did the most good, like I think getting all the fetch lands in here is important. I think that other than that, there's some you know Zendikar got the other fetch lands in, and then it's probably some of the earlier stuff. If you look at like Time yeah. Spiral Block, Time all Spiral. of the cool cards that are in there, that's that's done a lot of interesting stuff for this format. So, I mean, Cons is clearly the best because it made me uh, it made me really enjoy Magic, and then think about playing Modern, and then making a Modern podcast called the Dive Down with you all and we've we've had a, a hugely important impact to the format indeed we did how about you stan stan what's what's your answer yeah modern horizons 2 well, i mean yeah the most good come okay. on really yeah i mean yeah there's yeah. There's, there's strong arguments yeah there. yeah I, th- I think modern horizons 2 was the most effective way of both creating a new identity for the format while cleaning up some of their past messes. And even though we lost a lot of beloved staples, we lost our Lilianas and our Snapcasters and our burning tree emissaries. <laughs> I don't know. Out of that, we also gained like a stability that we haven't had since 2019 or, or late 2018 for that matter. I think that's probably true. I mean, I guess closing this on a discussion of Modern Horizons too quickly I think makes sense. I do f- still feel bad that it, there are lots of anecdotal evidence of people saying, well, Modern Horizons 2 priced me out of the game because the cards that I had to get are so expensive from the set. You know, Ragavan, people hate Ragavan. Ragavan's probably my favorite card generally right now to play with, other than, you know, my old favorites like Lightning Bolt. So I, I think there's a case to be made for what you're saying, Stan, that they had to fix what was broken and this helped by putting cheap interaction into the format. Lots of cheap interaction in the format. 
so cheap it's free. Practically yeah. pays you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we got to close this one down, y'all. I really, one, I want to, I personally want to thank Will for uh, being such an important uh, financial support for the podcast, just in terms of the, you know, the barrister and man partnerships we have. Uh, I know that that's uh, helpful for both parties, but also for being just such a longtime uh, patron. We're super happy to do this episode um, essentially for you. You know what I mean? It was, it was fun for us, but it's, it's great to have you to work with for so long. And we appreciate all of our patrons out there for helping keep us going no matter what tier you're at. But yeah, if you want to be able to do an episode like this, work with us on a topic every six months or so, you can you know, go up to the $15 a month, excuse me, $15 an episode tier. We know it's a lot, but if you have it and you uh, want that uh, privilege and ability, uh, feel free to think about it. This was really fun for me, you guys. Like I, I had a really good time looking at like this history of modern through like the these wild and creative and sometimes busted sets of the past. And really what it made me feel was like nostalgia for a time I never had. Like it made me really wish I had got like gotten into magic earlier than I did. Like I took nineteen years off this game, right? Between like ninety-five and twenty fourteen. So like, you know, I, I could have been doing a lot more fun than just coming back with cons. Yeah, 19 years of accomplishing nothing. Nothing. Literally <laughs> nothing. Um, just like thinking about playing in like that different era where like Tarmogoyf's hinting at Planeswalkers or like, you know, the 10 guilds of Ravnica were brand new concepts. They could have like been drafting Innistrad. That, that just seems like a lot of fun that I could have had like with less, less income and more time, I guess. Shame, but you can draft now. That's a good point. Drafts, drafts are still fun. You can discover... You know, uh, the wilds of Eldraine and uh, rats. You, you can rat, You can do rat stuff now, yeah, bro. Rat it up. Any thoughts on this, y'all? On this, on this experiment, Dave, did it make you think about magic in a slightly different way? Or is it kind of what you remembered? This one just kind of made me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> we are old, Dave. <laughs> Same. This, this one reminded me of the time that uh, I went on a date to see a girl play in her band at Lincoln Hall and then I biked to the Dice Dojo at midnight to make the Magic Origins pre-release because pre-releases used to fire at midnight. Yeah, it was the worst. Yeah. I, did, I did one of those ever. Worst idea ever. Yeah. Well, I was 23 or 24 at the time so I was able to do crazy stuff like that and then bike home at 4 a.m. and just dream. <laughs> Sleep till noon. Yeah, basically. Well, that was fun. Thank you again, Will. Um, thank you guys for doing such thorough research. This was really, really cool to just hear both of your perspectives. Uh, Dave, walking us through a little bit of your history and your youth. Shane, grounding it all together. And With oldness. Being the funny one. <laughs> like always. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or just reach out in general, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Also check out our store at thedivedown.com slash store. Head over to heavyplay.com to get some incredible deck and dice boxes and playmats featuring their awesome equip mag system. 
Use promo code THEDIVEDOWN2023 for 10% off your first order at Heavy Play. Also, shout out to Manatraders for sponsoring the Dive Down. Sign up for Manatraders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN23, all one word, for 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. And also get some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more at Barrister and Man using that same promo code, THEDIVEDOWN23. Gets you 15% off your first order from Barrister and Man. And then save some money on paper cards at Nerd Rage Gaming with promo code DIVE8. 8% off all your orders at NRG. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere in Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and take a walk down memory lane! Musical guest, the Fly Honeys.